Pentecost. Uh, thanks so much, everyone, for joining us on uh, Saturday, Sunday, August 27, 2006, 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. I appreciate everybody's time and attention to drop by and have a listen and a chat. This is uh, Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio. And I thought I would start off today with just a little bit of a chat about responsibility. And no, not the kind of uh, Sunday school finger-wagging responsibility like you want to go to the dentist and stuff like that. Although I must say the dentist isn't a bad idea. But the question of why is the world in such a mess? Who is responsible? Who is responsible for the world being in such a mess? And uh, I'm going to start off with silence is loud being perfectly responsible, but I'll make that, uh, this is one of the listeners, uh, I'll make that case in a little bit. But overall, I would say that... It's, this comes out of a debate that's going on on the boards, mostly around voters and around teachers. And as far as voters go, there is a strong feeling among, a, to me at least, surprisingly large number of people that voters are somehow to blame for the predations of the state. In other words, uh, I'll see if I can make the case uh, for, for what's being said on the boards, and if you've been in this debate and I'm getting something wrong, please feel free to let me know. But the basic argument is this. Voters know that they are arguing... Uh, sorry, voters know that they're voting for stolen money from other people. And so when they cast a vote in to have Social Security increased or they cast a vote in for a free daycare or an increase in the welfare payments or whatever that they know that this money is coming from uh, productive or other people and that uh, it's immoral what they're doing, that they are uh, voting to have money taken from people and given to them. And therefore, voters, uh, not only do they vote for the transfer of income at the point of a gun, which is bad, but also that voters, through the very act of voting, legitimize the power of the state. Because what happens is when you vote, you are pretending that you're participating in a political or a civilized process when that's not the case at all. And as Ayn Rand said a couple of hundred dozen times in each of her novels, this problem of the sanction of the victim is quite a significant one. And so when you vote, you are uh, encouraging them, as Harry Brown used to say. You're just encouraging them. And so when you vote, you are providing a sort of veneer of legitimacy to the whole process of state power. And you're also, of course, uh, asking for all of this immoral stuff about getting other people's money and so on. So there's a lot of people who feel that the, um, the power of the state is highly problematic and is brought about or, or only enhanced because of the problem of people voting. So that's sort of the position that, that's on one side of the fence. And... I would say that I don't necessarily agree with that proposition. And for me, the real question is around cause and effect. And then I'll sort of say who I think is responsible, and then I'll unmute everyone. And uh, if you could just check your speakers and your um, microphone to make sure they're not both on at the same time. I'll sort of say why I don't think this is the case. And then I will uh, talk about uh, who I think is responsible for the mess that the world is in. I don't think that it's voters, and I don't think that it's teachers. And I wouldn't even strongly say that I think that the reason that the world is in such a mess 
is because of the police and because of the military. So I'll sort of say who I think uh, the, the responsibility is, and then I'll unmute everyone and you could all have a, have a go at the argument, which would be great because it's relatively new, and I'm not saying that I've worked out all the kinks. So the reason that I don't think that voters are responsible primarily for the evils of the government is uh, sort of three major reasons. The first is that we, of course, have seen large numbers of government situations or governments exist which have no voting whatsoever, right? So you, you can think, or, or political uh, hierarchies exist without voting. Political hierarchies, of course, exist in the ape world. They exist among the ancient Aztecs. Uh, they exist among all primitive tribes that, that we've had some sort of understanding of from an anthropological standpoint. None of these things involve voting, yet they all have the power of the state. Um, if you look at pseudo-democracies uh, such as the Soviet Russia or Communist China, they all have voting. It's just that, you know, Stalin, because he was such a great guy, just happened to get 99.9% .9 of the vote. And everybody, that 0.01% ended up in an insane asylum because who would be crazy enough not to vote for Stalin? So it seems to me that the question of voting is not co-joined necessarily or intimately with the question of state power. And from that standpoint, I would say that you can't look at voting as the cause of state power, right? I mean, if something is the cause of it, it has to be there prior to and generate uh, the particular effect, right? Like a match is a cause of a forest fire because if you don't light the match and throw it into the tinder, then you're not going to get the forest fire, right? So I don't see that voting is the cause of state power. Now, the second reason that I would uh, put towards the argument against voting being the cause of state power is because the question is around the use of violence, as anybody who's listened to not just my podcast, but just about any classical liberal author, knows that the government is a social agency which claims a monopoly on the right to initiate force against innocent people. And from that standpoint, the real question is, who's going to use force in this situation? Well, the voters aren't going to use force, right? So let's just say that I... I've, I'm some old guy, and I'm, which, which to some of you uh, I may be, <laughs> but let's just, even to me, let's just say that I'm an old guy, and I vote for an increase in Social Security. I want 10% more money because uh, of X, Y, and Z, and so I vote for that. Well, the question is, what happens then? And we all know what happens is, if enough people vote for it, then it gets passed into law. Uh, well, I mean, this is in the, the general story. I'm not saying this is exactly or accurately how it happens, but this is the general story or understanding of democracy. Enough people vote for it. It goes into, uh, gets uh, uh, passed into law, and then uh, you get paid out more money in your Social Security, and people either pay for it or you deficit finance it or you, whatever, right? You print the money. But let's just say that people have to pay an increase in taxes to pay for the Social Security. So then you get a tax increase, and if you don't pay it, then the police come to your door and uh, they demand, well, you get letters and all that sort of civilized nonsense, and then you get down to the real core of state power, which is that people come along uh, to your house and will take you away and throw you in jail, uh, a.k.a. the rape rooms, in order to get you to pay, uh, if you don't pay, if you don't pay your taxes. Now, the real violence that's occurring here, of course, is the policemen. It's not the politicians. It's not the voters. It's not the clerks of the court. It's not the judge. The only thing that's happening fundamentally that is violent is that 
a guy is coming to your house dressed in a costume, usually blue, and saying, if you don't come with me, if you resist arrest, if you uh, try and shoot me the way that you would shoot any other intruder coming into your house, then I'm going to gun you down. And I've got 12 guys I can call as backup. We could even in an extremity call in an airstrike. Right? The fundamental violence of the state is the cop or the soldier's gun against your ribs. Come with me, sir. And I don't see that the voter is directly responsible for that. Because the question is, what happens if the government doesn't exist or if the government doesn't have that power? If the government doesn't have the power to use the police and the military to transfer income from one segment of the population to another, then I don't believe that voting would occur. Right? Voting is what? You, you take a piece of paper, you write on it, and you put it in a ballot. Well, uh, you know, uh, Christina does that with her suggestion box at home quite continually. I'm not saying that I open it, uh, and I'm hoping that it's not going to be enforced through violence. So, from that standpoint, I think it's important to understand that the voting does not cause the violence. The violence causes the voting. Because the government has the power to redistribute income, people vote to get income, and they're not always voting to get income from other people. Sometimes they're just voting to get their money back, the money that's been taken from them prior to. So from that standpoint, I don't think that it's a very good argument to say voting causes violence. I would say quite to the contrary that a violence, the violence of the state causes people to go out and vote because you get all your money taken from you and you either vote to get some of it back or you just, you know, the next guy gets it. It's a total state of nature. And the last argument, the third one that I would make against this statement is to say that what happens if the state goes away? I'm, some, I'm the old guy who wants 10% increase in Social Security. If the state goes away, am I going to pick up a gun and go and rob a bunch of people in my neighborhood or in some other neighborhood in order to get the extra money that I believe is my due? Well, I've got to tell you, I don't think it would happen that way. I think if you get rid of the state, people aren't going to use violence to get their way. See, when you vote, it's a pretty civilized thing in your own mind, right? You're sitting there and you put your little ballot in and then you never see the violence, right? The same thing with politicians. They stand up in their, you know, the House of Commons or, or wherever it is, the Parliament. They make their speeches. They sign their documents. They don't see the point of the gun that's pointed at the chest of the innocent citizen or civilian, right? They're not on the midnight IRS raids which drag people off to jail. They don't see it. I mean, they get it sort of, if you talk to them about it, they don't see it directly. So if you get rid of the government, you get rid of voting. If you get rid of voting, you don't get rid of the government. So I think that to say that voting causes government problems is like ta it's the tail wagging the dog. It's saying that the forest fire causes the match to go off and go into the tinderwood, which I just don't think is a defensible argument. So... I don't think that we can logically say that the average citizen who votes is responsible for the evils of the state. Now, the second case that I'll make for all of this prior to turning the mics to the faithful listeners is to say that I don't think that teachers are responsible for the state of the world. I don't think that the politicians are responsible for the state of the world. I don't think that 
even although it's a lot closer, uh, the cops and the soldiers are responsible for the state of the world. I don't blame the average person for having no clue about freedom any more than I would blame Stalin's daughter for being a communist. Right? If you don't obey the teachers in the state schools, then you get no future. You don't even graduate high school, and these days in most countries they'll dose you with Ritalin, which is going to do some brain damage to you. So I don't blame students for conforming. I don't blame people who want to be teachers for conforming, because if you want to be a teacher, 99 times out of 100, it's going to be a state school that you're going to have to teach at. So are we just going to have like nobody be teachers because there is this situation? Even the cops are raised to believe that they are essential and the foundations of a civilized society and the price that we pay for a, a culture and a peaceful world. And everybody tells them that they're the heroic men and women in blue. And everybody talks about, even the soldiers, how you know we respect them for the sacrifices they're making for the causes of our freedom and so on and so on. And this is everything that they get from propaganda, from their own teachers, from their own parents, from their own community. And every time they turn on the media, they see the same stuff repeated. And people get Nobel Prizes, even the free market economists who get Nobel Prizes, get Nobel Prizes for proposing things like a negative income tax and a reduction in tariffs, not anarchy, right? If you, if you start to talk about a society with no government, you're going to get marginalized very quickly. So I think that most people are caught up in this problem of violence and can't see it for what it is. Everybody goes to the experts, everybody turns on television, and you never see people who talk about real freedom on these kinds of mediums, because if you do talk about any kind of real freedom, any kind of principled opposition to the initiation of violence, you're not going to get heard, because people simply can't categorize you. They're not aware, fundamentally, of uh, the perspective and the viewpoint, and all they've ever heard is that only crazy people talk about uh, life without a government or life where you really are principled about the non-initiation of the use of force. So I don't think that it's any individual's fault that we've named so far. I do have some ideas about whose fault I think it is, but let me just uh, cast it open wide so that people can give me some feedback on uh, anything that they've heard so far. I'm just about to unmute everyone now. All right, I will continue. <laughs> What that means, of course, is that uh, uh, everybody completely and totally agrees with me. Yes, that's it, I'm sure. All right, let me sort of give you the, uh, the, um, my ideas about who is, um, who is responsible. Well, the basic idea... Oh, sorry, uh, Adi. Uh, so you ha we have somebody who wants to say one sentence. And if you can make a sentence as long as mine, I'm sure that everybody will appreciate it. Uh. I doubt I have this uh, talent. Uh, just one remark I, that I want to make is that um, there is still some sort of responsibility for action, even if uh, uh, we don't intend to do harm. So uh, the lack of intent does not excuse um, the action, uh, if you understand what I'm, I'm saying. Now, by action, do you mean voting? Or do you mean uh, something else like uh, uh, conformity or being a teacher? Or do you mean a cop pulling out a gun and sort of pointing it at a taxpayer? I mean uh, a teacher that uh, preaches uh, uh, socialism, for instance, or collectivism, or even uh, a policeman who enforces the law by violence or 
a judge who orders the incarceration of drug addicts, for instance. Okay, so let me just unmute everyone else and just unmute you. I just want to make sure that I fully understand uh, what it is that you mean by um, by this kind of responsibility. Do you think that if somebody has never been exposed to the idea that the government is violence, do you think that they are uh, responsible for having that idea within their minds or not? I think uh, we should maintain the idea of responsibility. Uh, we can't know exactly if they have or they have not been exposed to such a thing. Um, there is no real way of knowing, and um, not knowing, I don't see how could be any use. Uh, they could learn later on that they had been acting um, immorally, but um, there is uh, no doubt, I think, to the immoral nature of these acts. Do you think that the there? But I think that for a lot of people, and I'm, I'm not sort of defending the position. I'm just defending the people who don't know any better, or at least who I would say don't know any better. There uh, are a lot of people who've never been exposed to the idea that the government is based on force. And when you tell them, they're usually kind of shocked. Now, what happens after you tell them is something I'll, I'd like to talk about some more. But I think from that standpoint, I'd le least like to sort of make the case that people. Um, who don't understand the kind of ethics that we're talking about, it's like asking, saying that people are stupid in a sense because in the 12th century they thought that the world was flat. No, I'm not saying that necessarily. Um, let's take the example of a soldier who thinks that it is morally right to murder at uh, the order of politicians. Uh, I wouldn't call a person immoral just because uh, he has been inundated with propaganda all his life. So that person, you believe, it may be forgivable for them prior to having the argument laid out to them that they may have this opinion that it's morally good to obey politicians and defend your country and so on. I don't think there is a specific moral uh, value of opinions. I think only actions carry that. Well, okay, let, let me ask you this then, and, and you may well be right, I'm just sort of exploring the idea. If somebody believes that the world is flat and they try to sail from Europe to America, they're going to get lost, right, because they're not going to take the curvature of the earth into account. And so would you say that somebody's a bad navigator if they try and sail from Europe to America and miss because they believe they've never been told that the world is round, but they believe that the world is flat based on the evidence of their senses? I don't know exactly what to say in such a case, but I, I'm sure there, there have been navigators lost this way. Uh, very sort of risk to any sort of endeavor. Um, I, I believe that there is an um, necessity to look beyond the senses some way, uh, not beyond, beyond the, the immediate senses, I mean, to think about it. Uh, your example, for instance, uh, sea travel is already a dangerous uh, topic in itself, so there are many more reasons why one navigator can get lost at sea, but um, maybe if you can have a better example. A better example? It's, Eddie, it's inconceivable that I could come up with a better example. That's all I've got. <laughs> all right, uh, let me just say something like this then. Let's say that um, you're a doctor, and I'm, I've used this before, so apologies to those who've heard it before. 
So you're a doctor in the Middle Ages, and you have, don't even understand the circulation of the blood. You believe in the four humors, and you believe in leeching and all this kind of nonsense that doesn't, you know, doesn't make any sense scientifically, but this is all that you know as far as being a doctor goes. Are you, I mean, if you did that now with the knowledge of antibiotics and you did that now with the knowledge of the circulation and the lymph system and, and antibodies and so on, if you prescribe leeching and, and so on now, you would obviously be a, a doctor who was criminally insane or evil. But in the Middle Ages, given that they didn't know these things, you can't apply the same standards uh, based on exactly the same action. So now, if a doctor prescribed leeching, it's kind of evil. But in the Middle Ages, you can't say that a doctor is evil if he has no idea that leeching is bad and no idea of any alternatives. Yeah, there is also a caveat with that, uh, in that leeches are in fact used in modern medicine, in amputation surgery. Um, you can search it up, I think. But, yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, you're, you're so, quite right. And I, I, let's yeah. just, I, you're absolutely right, and, and that is a caveat. Uh, but generally, uh, the way that they used them in the Middle Ages was, was counterproductive. Let's just say maybe we'll take the example of bleeding which was very, you know, yeah. they considered the excess of, it was an excess of blood that caused problems, so they would actually bleed people taking crucial white cells out of their system when they were fighting an infection. And uh, bleeding would just be considered bad all around. And yet, only, only um, yeah, they didn't know the scientific method, and they had uh, no um, strong way of uh, determining um, uh, what they know and what they don't know, but um, I think even by observation, and I think there were such observations at that time, and they were ignored, um, you could see that um, people who are consistently bled tend to die more often. I think that would have been observable. I think uh, the problem in such case uh, well, would be um, something that religion also is that consistent ignoration ignorance of um, of um, of information right that's yes that's i agree yeah, yeah. when you when you lack certain kinds of information your responsibility goes down now i would argue that once you get certain kinds of information your responsibility goes up but i would say that given the amount of false information that's put out there by people in power and just by the general nature of the system that we have I would say that the vast majority of people are in a state of pre-medieval, almost Stone Age ignorance when it comes to understanding the nature of the world that they live, the social world and the political world that they live in. Although um, there, there is one important aspect in that if we are trying to develop um, a system that is distant, we should um, we should uh, give uh, them a little less uh, a leeway on the ignorance ground. Um, we should not we should be able to determine if an action is moral or not. And um, outside these um, these contingencies, if we can call them like that, mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. Uh, so I think it, it's important to determine the moral nature of acts. I've got it. I've got it. Now, let me. Uh, do you mind if I ask you a question or two, just to see if I can understand how you view this vis-à-vis -vis your own life? Um, sure. How old were you when you first got a hold of the idea that uh, government was violence and and so on? Um, about one year ago. So I was twenty. Twenty. Okay. Great. Now. 
Um, did you figure that out on your own, or did you receive it from some external source? Uh, if by external source you mean written? Yeah, someone uh, wrote it. Yeah, or, you know. so over Mises.org. Yeah. Okay, yeah. great. Yeah. Now, would you say that when you were 19, i.e. before you understood this stuff, that you were an immoral human being? Mm, I wouldn't say necessarily, because if uh, the moral nature of acts determined by the acts themselves and not the opinions, um, I don't think I have committed a particular um, moral acts, immoral acts particularly, yeah? So um, if I had, then I would have to, to recognize that. I would have had to recognize it. Okay, I understand, I understand. Um, now, do you, um, when you think back to the time that you, you did not have these ideas, do you think that if you had not had these ideas, uh, or not had exposure to these ideas, that you may have ended up doing uh, immoral actions while thinking that they were uh, moral actions? I think probably I would have. Okay. Yeah. Now, do you think that if you had not had exposure to these ideas and you had performed immoral actions over the course of your life without believing that they were immoral or without knowing that they were immoral, that you would be uh, responsible in the same way that you would be now? I believe um, I would have. You would, so you would although, be yeah. Sorry, although, yeah, um, I will have to ponder this idea, but um, I think I would have. I would have regretted it later on, but uh, it could not have been changed. So that's one one fact. Okay. No, I think that's I think that's very honestly put, uh, and I think that uh, I certainly respect that that answer. Uh, I think it is an interesting question. I do have some opinions about it, but you all have no shortage of my opinions. I'm just going to unmute everybody, and if you would like to talk uh, about this in more detail, uh, you can speak up now if you'd like. Uh, would anyone else like to add something to this? <laughs> Maybe the person who's trapped in the dishwasher? Am I uh, unmuted? Uh, yep, let me just uh, mute everyone and unmute you. Um, yeah, sorry, just for those who uh, have not met Greg yet, he's a regular contributor to these Sunday afternoons, uh, but uh, he had to, uh, I think he just put in his application to become a cop, so he was a little bit late today. But uh, <laughs> Greg, if you'd like to uh, take that away, you might be able to bring something pretty salient to the debate. <laughs> Well, you were talking about assigning responsibility and um, and basically ignorance. And uh, while while we couldn't while we couldn't call eighty uh, immoral while he didn't understand, uh, I don't see how we how we couldn't call him immoral. If once he'd taken the time to understand what he was reading over at Mises and what he's listening to here at your podcast, and then willfully refusing to accept it, I don't understand how we couldn't assign the responsibility for that to him and not to you know Mises or to you or to the people who are explaining this to him. Right. 
so so if it was me for instance and I came across this stuff and I read it and I understood it and I said, Ah, this is crap, I'm I'm gonna keep it right on believing what I believe even though I know it's irrational. You know, how is that how, how is that the teacher's fault? Well, no, I fully understand, but I think that, that we're talking about the um uh, the, the third possibility, right? Now, the first possibility is somebody who's never come in contact with any rational ideas about freedom, but swim in a sea of state propaganda and have no idea. Like, they're in the matrix, right? <laughs> we could use the uh, pop popular culture shorthand here, right? They're in the matrix. They have no idea that they're in the matrix, right? So that's somebody, I would argue, does not have a uh, strong set of moral responsibilities, uh, in the matter of defending uh, rationality, freedom, ethics, and, and being logical, and so on. It's like asking Stone Age Neanderthals, uh, why is it that you people are so stupid that you haven't figured out that the world is round, right? And then, of course, they just give you those blank, furry-eyed stares because they don't have really good language skills. But anyway, we can, we can have the Neanderthal discussion another time. But that's sort of the first situation. Now, the second situation is somebody who's had exposure to the ideas and accepted them. And the third is somebody who's had exposure to the ideas and not accepted them. And so there's sort of three conditions here. And my argument is to say that the vast majority of people are in category numero uno, for a Spanish uh, listeners, listener, um, that they have not had exposure to the ideas. And then I would say, saying that they are then at fault, for the situation of the world, I think is not not accurate. Right. Well, that I'd agree with. But if we once uh, try to explain this to them and they refuse to acknowledge it, um, I mean, of course, it takes time to do that. But they still refuse to acknowledge it. Then, then you know, I don't I don't see why it wouldn't be reasonable to harbor some hostility toward that person for refusing to acknowledge reason. Oh, absolutely. Uh, completely. It's like the people who disagree with me in any way, shape, or form. It's stone evil. Stone evil. This includes Christina sometimes. But um, <laughs> no, I, I totally understand and agree with you. But And the only reason that I sort of argue for the first case is that you know, as I mentioned, I just I just happened to have a friend who liked the band Rush, and he actually moved away for a while and then moved back. And of course, this is how I ended up picking up the Fountainhead. It's not likely that I would have ended up coming. So for me, like there's this totally random fork in the road. And in one, if this guy didn't happen to move back or like the band Rush or pick up the uh, the Fountainhead, then I'm I'm like spiraling into a pit of pure evil because this guy just didn't happen to like a particular rock band. And on the other hand, because he did like this rock band, I'm now a paragon of glowing virtue. And that just seems a little bit random to me and not something that I would... Because uh, I'm sure as heck didn't invent uh, just about everything that's on the podcast is, you know, cribbed from somebody else. So I can't really say that, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm this great guy because I've invented all this philosophy. Um, you know, 99.9% .9 of what I get, I get from other people. And that all came from this initial situation where this guy handed me a book and said, oh, yeah, the drummer in a band I like is really into this uh, writer. Maybe you should have a read. I liked it. 
right? So I guess that's my, my only concern that I don't want to look back at my life and say, due to this totally random situation, or like Adi who ended up, because he was in a, uh, I think a UN simulation, ended up getting involved in, in Mises. Uh, it's, it's just so random. Like, this, like the, the lightning strikes you and you're a moral human being and the lightning lands two feet to the left and you're evil. And that's just something that I was kind of surprised when everyone talked about the evils of voters. I just thought it seemed like we were not having the right kind of humility about the kind of lucky chance that we had in terms of the material that we've been exposed to. Well, I mean, I mean, put in those terms, sure, but but I don't necessarily see it as uh, I don't know. It's hard to put this into words, but I don't see it necessarily as entirely random. It, you know, it, this stuff isn't just like. Um, arbitrarily falling out of the sky it's you know there are people who are doing their best to get it out there but it's largely being suppressed by everyone else around them you know and so and so it it takes it takes a certain amount of effort and motivation in the first place to find it yes yes absolutely and, so and it's but, not like you're just walking along on the street and all of a sudden you know, uh, 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 speaking of liberty, falls out of the sky and hits you in the head. It's... Right, it's more like an email. Right. <laughs> right. No, I absolutely agree that it does take some effort to sort of try and uh, to try and find it or, or fill it out or, or have what you will. And once, but but the other thing too is there's lots of people out there in the libertarian world. Uh, some of whom are going to run at you. Like, I mean, I, I try to sort of be vaguely inviting and, and <laughs> try and make people enjoy sort of the conversation. But there are a lot of people out there, and there are some people on our board itself, there are some people who are out there who are, oh, you voted? You're evil. <laughs> right? I mean, the, the, the way that people jumped all over this poor public school teacher, uh, I thought was a, a bit uh, a bit sort of... Uh, uh, mobbish, I guess you could say, or, or uh, lynchy. And uh, that's sort of my uh, major concern, that if you just, like, let's say that you get exposed to libertarian ideas, but it's someone who says, oh, you're a public school teacher, you're a tool of of the evil fascist masses, and you are indoctrinating the children, and you are stone evil, and blah, blah, blah. Well, I'm not sure that I could really blame somebody for saying, you know, I <laughs> I might not want to pursue these ideas <laughs> too, too much, given that they define me without asking any questions as stone evil. I'm just sort of saying that's an example of how somebody may be exposed to the ideas but not have much of a motivation to go further into understanding them. Right, but there's still, there's still the... Um, uh, there, there's still the need to, to point out... The, the contradiction, I think. I mean, it's. It, I mean, it's only fair to say that, you know, without being hot, I guess. Um, uh, how can I say this? Um, you know, you're trying to explain to somebody that what they're doing, whether they realize it or not, is at least in, to some extent. Uh, um, uh, um, a, an implicit um, um, approval of uh, of state power, right? So you 
you go to become a soldier or a or a cop or a school teacher or a bureaucrat or a, you know a regulatory inspector or something else you you're implicitly in doing so agreeing with uh with the institution that you're getting involved with aren't you well, uh, let, let's, that, that's a very interesting question. I can't sort of say that I have a clear answer, but uh, there's sort of two, two things I would respond to that. Um, and if you want to add something to this other than Greg and I, just uh, put it in the chat and maybe Christina will let me know. She's monitoring the chat. The first thing that I would say is the initiation of force is the primary evil in any kind of rational moral philosophy, and I don't see how the school teacher is initiating any force. The second is... I don't believe that there's any core evil called um, approving an evil institution, right? So if I say, well, I think the mafia is great, I don't think that I can be thrown in jail for that, right? I mean, it's the people who are out there actually pulling the trigger and so on who are the evil people. If I am, I don't know, like a, a skinhead who likes Nazism, but I don't do anything wrong, surely that's uh, well, what if allowed, you go, right? Well, what if you go up to your local capo and say, hey, uh, how can I get in on this? Well, I would say uh, that um, uh, the question is, what does get in on this mean, right? I mean, it, does it mean that I want to mow your lawn? Well, I don't see that uh, the the um, the mafia guy hiring someone to mow his lawn is necessary. The guy who mows his lawn is evil, right? The guy who delivers his newspaper is not evil. The guy who fixes his car is not evil. The evil people are the ones pulling the triggers and busting the kneecaps, as far as I could see. But if you say, I want to get in on this, like give me a bat, I want to go bust someone's kneecaps, then yeah, for sure, you've crossed over. But I mean, I, there were some uh, public school teachers with bats when I grew up, but they were mostly just hitting fly balls. <laughs> okay, then, uh, then participation at the voter level is equivalent to the guy mowing the local capo's lawn. Well, I wouldn't... I wouldn't even say it's that bad because the guy mowing the lawn is getting directly impressed into his hands money that comes from the proceeds of a crime, right? So you could, I think, make a case, and it's a complicated case to make, but I'll just touch on it briefly here. You could say that if the mafia guy steals $10,000 from someone and then gives 100 bucks to some kid to mow his lawn, that the kid might have to return the money because the money was stolen. You could make a case for that kind of restitution. But, of course, in the world of uh, demo democracy, uh, there's, almost, there's almost no conceivable way to trace the flow of money. So I would say that somebody who votes may be less culpable than somebody who mows the capo's lawn. But he's still participating in the same kind of behavior where he's um, seeking to have pressed into his hand money that was gotten from a... Um, from an immoral act. That's certainly true, but he is both a, uh, a, a, a recipient and a victim of that same immoral act, right? Because voters uh, have money taken away from them throughout their lives at the point of a gun as well. So to me, it's sort of like if you have the local mafia guy uh, comes and uh, uh, steals all of your money, like you have, give me 50% protection money or I'll burn down your store, and then he holds a barbecue uh, might you not go to get a free meal? I mean, the guy's taken half your money. I mean, this is an ex extreme example, and I'm sorry that it's it's a bit a bit sort of stacked. 
but uh, a voter, if he's sort of outside the system and just generally pillaging and taking everything, then I think you can make a stronger case for that. But the voter is a victim as well. And the voter gets all his money stripped from him at the point of a gun as well. And the voter doesn't have a choice about that, right? I mean, and he, but even if we say that the voter is evil, he's still less evil than the guy pointing a gun at the citizens, right? Because uh, he's, if the initiation of the use of force is the prime evil in a moral philosophy, then the people actually pointing their guns at the citizens to collect the taxes are far, far worse than the voter. I mean, would you, would you agree with that? I guess in terms of the, uh, the severity of the outcome and the immediacy of the act, I, I guess I would agree that it's, it's different in degree, but I don't know if I would agree that it's different in kind. Because different in kind. Okay, go for it. Be, because anybody along the point, anybody along the chain could simply just decide to stop participating. You know, from the voter all the way on up to the the, the, the cops and the soldiers, right? So, and and that would pretty much break the break the chain. It would break the process. And so. Sorry, Every, can I just interrupt you? For, I just want to make sure I understand what you're saying here. So, I mean, there's politicians, there's bureaucrats, there's teachers, there's cops, and there's all these people sort of involved in this transfer of the property or recipients of it or managing it or whatever, right? And if any one of those people or any group of those people drop out of the equation, the system falls down? Is that what you mean? Yeah, at least to, at least to an extent. So I, I, would, I would consider participation, um, you know, at all a, a form of a form of evil and I, I think we've already established this a, a while back too that everybody's hands are dirty we have no choice in the matter that because we have to participate in order to survive all of us have blood on our hands but all it would take would be one group of people to say okay you know enough is enough you know let's say it's not the voters let's say it's the elected officials who say you know what uh, let's not be elected anymore right do you not think that there would be other people who would take their i mean i know what you mean like if all the politicians go home but i think that i mean the problem is of course i mean i understand what you mean from an abstract sense in a procedural way a other people would jump into their place and b if you were the one politician left standing you'd have complete power right so i mean as more politicians so i, I do sort of understand what you mean but right. In, pra- of- in practical terms, that's correct. You're right. It, that, that there would always be somebody to fill the gap. But I, I was just speaking in 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 terms of principle, that uh, that the the it's the same evil in kind, but maybe not necessarily the same evil in degree. Well, I think that the. I mean, first of all, I mean, there's a couple of things there. The the first thing is that I don't feel that I have blood on my hands. I mean, that that's uh, for for me. I didn't sort of invent the system. I'm just doing my best to survive and doing what I can to oppose the evils that are there. But I violently disagree with the system, did not put it into place, and I'm trying to do the most that I can uh, to sort of uh, uh, oppose it. So I don't feel that I have blood on my hands. Maybe that I know that that's a strong feeling with other people, but uh, I don't. Uh, I don't sort of take the moral responsibility for systems that other people have put into place. But I think that... When it comes to this question of participation, I think that 
I think it's just important to look at the cause and effect of state power. I mean, the cause of state power, in, in a sort of very fundamental way, is it's the essence of state power is the one group that if you take it away, they're not the state, right? I mean, there'll be teachers in Libertopia, right, <laughs> in, in the sort of future world to be. There'll be teachers, uh, there'll be protection agencies, there may be soldiers, there may be cops, there's going to be bureaucrats. I mean, there are species you can never seem to get rid of. But there'll be all of these things. But what is going to be the sort of one fundamental difference? And there'll be bad and corrupt organizations and organizations that cheat and lie and, and defraud and, and, and all. There'll be thieves, there'll be all of the things, right? But the one thing that's going to be fundamentally different is not schools and teachers, is not protection and property, is not bureaucrats and corrupt organizations. The one thing that's going to be different at a, a functional or procedural level is that there won't be an army of people willing to pull guns against the innocent. I mean, there may be. I mean, who knows, right? But there won't be a state. And that, to me, is sort of the fundamental difference between where we are and where we want to be. And so given that everything else will be, to one degree or another, kind of like the same, except that the idea of there being a central group of people who can point guns at everyone else with impunity and be morally right in doing so, that's the one thing that's going to be different. And that's the thing that I focus on. And I have no problem with, with exploring more the idea of participation as evil, but I just wonder if you can define it a little bit. Because when we think of good and evil, I think it's nice to have not too blurry a line about these sorts of things. And I'm just wondering if you could define where the line is for participation versus non-participation, or uh, are we sort of all evil, or as you say, have blood on our hands? Well... I, I guess I would say that uh, if, if, let's say you're a voter and I come up to you and I explain how what they're, you're doing is, you know, um, you know, basically uh, um, agreeing to Agreeing to participate in the system where, um, you know, some people are allowed to take stuff from other people, um, but every three months or every six months, you get to come and put a piece of paper in this box and keep your fingers crossed that maybe you'll get some of it back. Uh, you know, by casting the ballot, you're saying. I don't have any problem with some men taking guns out and stealing money from people because I get a piece of the action, maybe. Well, me, or because they've taken it all from me before. Like, they took it all from me my whole life, and I want some of it back because i got to retire. Well, I mean, that's that's a different way to, to phrase it, but it's it's essentially the same thing. As long as I get a piece of the action... I don't care if everybody gets robbed. Well, but if you've been robbed already, I mean, I think it would be fair to say that if somebody robs you and you get a chance to steal your property back, that that would be a valid thing to do, right? Right, but you're not really stealing your property back. You're stealing what's already been stolen and it's in a big pile. You don't know whose is whose. 
Yes, but you do know, right. for instance, I do know that I'm paying 50 grand a year or more in taxes, right? So I do know that over the course of my life, you know, I don't know, the course of my working career, like, I don't know, $600,000, $700,000 has been taken from me at gunpoint. And so if I then say, well, I'm not going to ask for any of that back, then it's a huge net loss for me, obviously. Um, and if I'm trying to get the property back, and I'm just playing devil's advocate here, right? But if I'm trying to get the property back that has been stolen from me, I think it's tough to talk about voluntary participation or agreement in a system that aggresses against, like that charges tax on a five-year-old buying a candy bar, right? I mean, the, the, the fact that your whole life you get taxed and you don't get the bike at Christmas because your parents have to pay property taxes and you can't go to private school because your parents are forced to send you to public school or maybe there's no private school allowed or maybe they can't afford private school because of the level of taxation that you're stuck in daycare because both your parents have to work because taxation is so high. To me, it's kind of tough to say that there's a voluntary participation in that kind of situation where you're continually um, enforced, uh, like things that you don't agree with are continually enforced against you. Property is stripped from you. You're ordered to go X through X, Y, and Z. I don't think that's the same as, as somebody participating in, in a system. So voting is not asking for it back. Voting is essentially hiring a guy to go take it back at the point of a gun. Yes. It's retaliatory violence. It's, it's a possible way of looking at it. I mean, I'm not saying that this is the case for every voter, right? But uh, it's, a, it's a possible way of looking at it. Like, I mean, if, if they tax me at 99%, and God knows that could come at some point, right? It could be in this sort of Beatles situation. If they tax me at 99%, and I have no money to save for my retirement, I'm just like, I'm living in a hovel, and I'm drinking rusty water and eating stone bread. And then I need to retire. And the only way that I can retire after they've stolen millions of dollars from my whole life, the only way that I can retire is to ask for a certain amount of money back. Then I'm not necessarily sure that I could condemn someone for doing that. I mean, that's an extreme example, but just sort of to illustrate a principle. So essentially all the violence of the state, at, at least at the voter level, year after year after year, is this retaliatory self-defense? Well, I think that it could be that that's a pretty prime reason. I mean, there's some people to whom it's not a reason, right? I mean, but it could be uh, that, that that could be an argument that, that could be made. I mean, the problem is, of course, we don't know why people vote. But we do know this. We do know that people are not given the option to say, I don't want to get taxed and I don't want to vote. Right? That's not an option. Right? People have uh, stuff stolen from them their whole lives, from like the womb onwards, and then they vote. Right? They're not given the choice to say, okay, if I don't get taxed, I don't want to vote. Now, if they were given that choice, and then they decided to vote, and, and get to pay taxes and get votes, the only conceivable reason that they would do that is because they were expecting to get more out of the system than they were putting in. Right? That would be the only logical reason. Right, so then somebody who makes ten grand a year and pays one grand a year in taxes is going to say, "Yeah, you can tax me, and I want to vote because I'm going to get uh, free roads, and I'm going to get free uh, emergency health care, and I'm going to get my water is subsidized, and my school is subsidized." Somebody's going to want to do that. I all think the more that, reason to all, all the more reason to quit your job and go on welfare. Well, exactly, right. I mean, th th and of course, this is not a very abstract idea, right? Because this is the whole problem behind buying the votes of of poor people or, you know, paying people to, to not get upset about not having a job and so on. But if somebody has the choice 
to say uh, opt in or opt out of voting and taxation, and they choose to opt in, then I think they're morally responsible. But if it's inflicted upon them their whole life and they just it's a state of nature, to me, I'm not saying it's a good act to vote. I'm not saying it's an evil act to vote. I'm saying it's a state of nature. As an act of retaliation or self-defense, then we can't necessarily call it evil, but we certainly could argue that it's not effective. As oh, absolutely, for sure. For sure, but I mean, not effective is also something that's relative to where you are in your lifetime, right? I mean, if you're retiring now, it seems very unlikely that the state's going to collapse before you need your retirement money, so Social Security might not be the thing that you want to sort of start smashing. Um, so, you know, I, I totally agree with you that it's not effective in the long run to vote and say, well, let's just keep uh, keep this ship going because obviously it's going down. But uh, I do view it as, you know, you're, you're preyed upon before you have any chance to defend yourself. I remember paying taxes on my paycheck when I was 11 years old, right? So, I mean, you're preyed upon from the very beginning. You're stuffed in these state schools. You're indoctrinated. You're bullied. You're you're in these horrible, horrible situations, and everywhere you turn, you're taxed and, and so on. So for me, it's like, yeah, if you can get some money back, sure. I mean, uh, some one gentleman emailed me about, should I take a scholarship to go and study abroad from the government? Uh, for me, I'm like, hell yeah, <laughs> you're going to be paying much more in taxes than you'll ever get back uh, from the government, and at least you can take these resources and apply them towards learning more and communicating more about liberty. I'd say that's great. Uh, in the same way that I would say if somebody wants to go into the public school system, I would say more power to you, but it's only going to be moral if you teach kids about liberty to the best of your ability. And if it ever comes to the point where you can't, that you then have to sort of leave to be a, a good person. But to me, it's a, it's just a state of nature, right? People aren't – they don't choose the system. It's a totally inflicted on them from day one. Right, but uh, if I become a public school teacher because – there really not, are no other options. Uh, you know, I guess there's a private school system, but they're still pretty much beholden to the the public institutions. Um, then, you know, if I want to become a teacher, I have to participate. So, really, does it matter what I teach? Sorry, could you just repeat that last question? I just had three three pings from people, and I'm sorry, I lost a few syllables. <laughs> Oh, sorry. No, um, if if I want to become a teacher, I have to I have to involve myself in the system. So, because there's no other choices, right? So so that doesn't necessarily make me evil, but the, but at that point, does it really matter what I teach? If I teach what I'm you know, told to teach because that's the job, you know, then then I, I'm, I'm just carrying the the analogy the next step further, right? So so if 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 participation um, isn't necessarily evil because this is the only teaching job available, then how is the content that I'm teaching uh, of any consequence, you know, if the state tells me teach this or else, you know, I wanted to be a teacher, so this is what I got to teach. Yeah, absolutely, and there's usually ways that you can. I mean, there was subversive, there was subversive teaching methods even under Soviet 
uh, rule in a lot of Eastern European countries. So there's ways to get the truth across. So you can send people... You, you hand one little kid... Uh, I don't know, little kid. You hand one teenager the website Mises.org, you've changed, you could have changed that person's life. Like, that's how, how little it can take, right? One guy listened to an album, gave me a book, and my life was changed, right? So it's not... A, you don't have to sort of go on and on about this sort of stuff for years. There's lots of things that you can do as a teacher, even if all you're doing is funneling this stuff out. You know, this email will self-destruct in five seconds. Mises.org, quick, click on it, go! Or something like that. So there's lots of things you can do from that standpoint. But even if we say there's nothing that you can do, that you have to... Uh, teach what the government tells you to, um, and there's no other options, and you're not fit for anything else, and there's a recession on, and there are no other jobs, and whatever, whatever, you're in debt, then I'd say, yeah, go parrot what the teach to do, what the state tell, tell, tells you to, to, to do, and then, uh, you know, teach your children something better, right? I mean, th- to me, that's, you know, we've got to focus on the primary evil, which is the violence against the innocent, not on... Uh, participation in a situation that violence is being inflicted upon the teacher, right? I mean, and the only way to escape that violence would be to quit teaching, in which case maybe you, you know, going to take a huge financial hit. You have to put off having kids and whatever, right? Like there's uh, just so many repercussions. I just say let's focus on the guys who've got the guns out and not so much uh, focus on, you know, it just seems to me kind of, and I, I don't mean this for you, I just sort of mean this for people on the board, you know, for us to go pick on public school teachers and bureaucrats and so on, uh, it seems a little bit like um, we're kind of picking on the weaklings, so to speak, because the people who are the real problems as far as the, the state and the maintenance of its power goes are the people who got the guns out, the Marines, the cops, right? The, those are the people who have actually got the guns pointed at us, not, you know, Nancy, the 55-year-old public school teacher, uh, not that I know any Nancy who's a 55-year-old public school teacher. I'm just sort of pointing out, you know, the kindly old gray-haired kindergarten teacher is not the person who's got a gun to my chest, right? That's Joe Friendly cop guy or Joe Friendly um, marine guy. Those are the guys who've got a gun to my chest. And I just think that by picking on the school teachers and so on and saying, this is where my moral outrage is going to be, it just seems a little bit um, like we're barking up the wrong tree. And, of course, first and foremost, I would say that uh, we still, you know, want to focus on our own families before, um, you know, the violence that we experience within our own families, the corruption that we experience in our own families before uh, talking about the evils of public school teachers. And, and in that in that sense, I, I completely agree with you. That, uh, you know, picking on the weakest target is, uh, <laughs> is, is pretty, I mean, it's, it's the lowest form of self-interest, right? And I think we've all experienced that at one form or another in the schoolyard, so we should certainly know what that's about, right? Right, but but still, I think it's fair to point out the logic of it and understand what's really going on there. I certainly, you know, certainly agree, and it's a fascinating question. You're not question. necessarily picking on school teachers or picking on you know DMV bureaucrats just by pointing out the nature of their jobs. Right, right, right. Now, let me just, uh, somebody has asked a question here. I am enjoying your comments. I'm sure that's um, that's uh, uh, for Greg. I'm enjoying your comments. I'm noticing that you often put moral questions in binary terms. Things are either good or evil. Can you comment on this point? Are there any shades of gray in moral judgments? Now, of course, I view that kind of question as pure evil. Sheer evil. No, I'm just kidding. Um, that's uh, Yes, there are, there are shades of gray in moral judgments, absolutely, uh, completely, and totally. Uh, and, you know, one example that's, uh, you know, sort of springs to mind would be the question of self-defense. 
right? Uh, Self-defense is a complicated moral issue, not because it's not justified, but because the question is always proportionality, right? So if some guy runs a shopping cart over my foot, he uh, he's hurt me, I don't think that gives me the right to blow him away, right? <laughs> so uh, the, the, the real question is proportionality, which is there's lots of gray areas uh, and, and so on. Uh, there's lots of gray areas around things like euthanasia, you know, uh, uh, somebody who's brain dead, I don't think too many people are going to feel uncomfortable pulling the plug. Uh, somebody with a head cold, uh, again, unless they ask a question like this, um, probably not so much. So um, uh, somebody has asked, did I set the Skype cast for 15 minutes again? Uh, actually, no, I didn't. But let me, uh, I don't think I can change it now. I did actually make sure that it went for three hours. So um, I would say give it a shot. Uh, I have, uh, I will put in the main chat the link. Uh, if you're in the chat, you can try and come in through there, but it should still be continuing. I'm going to uh, – thanks, Greg. Uh, fantastic uh, conversation as always. I really appreciate that. I'm going to uh, just uh, put out uh, – unmute everyone so that we can get all of the random noises in the universe coming into the uh, chat just in case other people want to um, – uh, say anything, and if not, I'll sort of talk about a little bit about who I think is responsible for the mess that the world is in. Everybody, you've got the mic. Oh, let me just mute Andrew and Niels, because they often have uh, very good uh, counter-arguments to everything that I'm saying, so I'm just going to mute them, uh, because uh, we're all about the freedom here. Um, okay, well, let me just, uh, we're just talking about uh, why, uh, who is responsible for the world uh, being in such a mess. And, of course, I'm very glad that Niels has joined because uh, uh, I'm going to try and pin most of it on him, a little bit on Andrew, uh, most of it on Niels. But uh, I will give two, two minutes, maybe 2.2 maybe .2 minutes, on who I think is responsible for the world being in such a mess. And I'm going to uh, talk about... Uh, the philosophers, and I guess you could say the theologians, the, uh, those who argue for ethics, are responsible for the world being in such a mess. And I'll give you two minutes on why I think that's the case. First of all, they haven't given me any honorary PhDs. Obviously, that's number one. No Nobel Prizes. I keep staring at the phone. It's just it's killing me. It's keeping me awake at night. My fingernails are bitten to the quick. So obviously, that's number one for everyone. But I would say that there are two fundamental uh, uh, errors that spring into the realm of corruption that intellectuals who argue about ethics, we'll just call them intellectuals, make. The first is that they uh, do not provide full disclosure. Right? They do not provide full disclosure. So, for instance, a lot of things that we find out about intellectuals, we find out later. Right? So both Jung and Freud were both victims of sexual abuse. That may have had some effect on uh, the theories that they put forward, right? So this is one example. If you look at somebody like Kant or Nietzsche, these people whose fathers were Lutheran ministers, that they may have some issues left over from their families. And I think that it's very important when you're a philosopher to put out full disclosure so that people can put your ideas in context, in the context of your emotional history and situation. I think that's absolutely crucial. And of course, I've tried to do that in my podcast, perhaps um, add at nauseum, but uh, I think it's very important so that people can figure out why 
you are talking about what you're talking about. There's lots of topics you can spend your time on. You can be a gardener. You can collect stamps. If you're an ethicist, it's probably because of something that happened in your past. I certainly know that's the case for me. It doesn't mean that the arguments that you make are invalid, but I think full disclosure is very important, right? So why is it that John Stuart Mill, as I talked about in a podcast recently, was pro-war? Well, I think if you look at his family history, and if he was honest about that, then you would have some context with which to put in his... Um, his ideas. And I won't go into that into a huge amount of detail because I'm sure you get the idea. Full disclosure, number one, right? People need to be honest about what has driven them into particular topics, their family history, their personal history, their romantic history, so that you can make sure that the person isn't acting out some really bizarre psychological problem in that, uh, in that realm. So that's sort of the first thing is full disclosure. Now, uh, the second thing is hypocrisy. Now, hypocrisy is, to me, almost like a definition of an intellectual. Right? Intellectual equals hypocrisy in just about every situation you're ever going to want to come across. And the reason that I sort of mentioned that, I'll give a, a very sort of short example, and then I'll open it up back to the board. Let's say that uh, I'm some guy who's an astronomer in Pius IX's court in the Middle Ages, and I say, well, I'm all about science, and I'm all about learning this, and I'm all about learning that. And I don't say that I put forward what I'm putting forward because the Pope tells me to, or because I'm a Christian and I'm justifying the Bible or whatever. And you could use this, of course, for creationist arguments now. But let's say that the Earth says, uh, the Bible says the Earth is fixed and does not move. Right? So I say, as an astronomer, I say, well, the sun goes around the Earth, the Earth is fixed and does not move. But I don't base that on on the Bible, because that would be superstition alone, I base this on science. I'm very much into science and the rational method and experimentation and so on. And then, you know, Copernicus or Kepler or Galileo, someone comes along and says, no, 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 the uh, sun is the center of the universe, the earth moves and blah, blah, blah. Now, I have standards that I put forward saying I'm all about the science, I'm all about the evidence, I'm all about the logic. But secretly and deep down, I'm just being paid by the Pope to say that... The earth is the center of the universe because that corresponds with the Bible, right? So you want to make God look like he knows what he's talking about, so you want to make sure that you agree with the Bible. But I, I put it forward not as just I agree with the Bible, but it's science, science, science. So then one of these fine, uh, I guess mostly Italian, uh, sometimes Dutch, I can't remember, Kepler, Dutch? Uh, well, Niels would know. But I put, uh, somebody puts forward the proposition with strong uh, evidence, uh, very strong evidence, about the heliocentric universe, right, sun-centered universe. And I then shit all over that person, <laughs> uh, metaphorically. Although I don't know exactly what happened at the courts uh, of, of Pius IX. I doubt that would be acted out directly. But what I do is then I... Uh, I've been talking about science, and I haven't uh, said pretty honestly, well, you know, I'm kind of paid to say this, and, you know, that's what I do, right? There's a kind of hypocrisy in all of that. And so when people have particular standards, and then they, they come across an argument that conforms with those standards, but opposes their prejudices, conforms to the standards that they claim to hold, but opposes their prejudices, that, to me, is the fork in the road between corruption and integrity, between helping the world and killing the world, between happiness and creation of misery around the whole planet. So if I'm all about, uh, yeah, I, uh, I don't believe in violence as a solution to problems, and then somebody says, well, you know, the state is violence. And I say, well, that's, that's different, 
right? That's the moment, right? I think to me that's the moment that uh, moral responsibility uh, goes one way or the other. I mean, moral responsibility is there either way, but this is where somebody becomes corrupt or has integrity, is, is honest or not, right? And this is when we talk about parents. If your parents are on Dr. Phil, and let's say they, I don't know, they, they hit you, right? Uh, when you disagree with them, they'll, they'll slap you or, or spank you or whatever, punch you. And they're on Dr. Phil, and Dr. Phil says, well, how do you discipline these kids? Do you think that punching them is a good idea? And they say, yeah. I mean, what else are you going to do? That's the exact perfect, most moral thing to do. I mean, how could anyone even think remotely otherwise? then I would say that person is insane, right? Because uh, it's like uh, murdering somebody in front of a cop, right? I mean, you then have no idea what right and wrong is, and you're innocent in a very kind of weird way. You're kind of innocent of moral responsibility. But if Dr. Phil says, do you, do you think punching your children is a good idea? And you say no, and then you say to yourself, I can't believe my kid told Dr. Phil about the punching. Man, when I get him home, bam! He's going down, right? That's hypocrisy. That's when you have a standard that you claim to adhere to, but when somebody comes along and uses that standard to undermine a prejudice that you hold, and you then obscure or befog or evade or criticize or do an ad hominem attack or anything like that, that to me is why the world is in such a mess. Intellectuals, those who talk about ethics, do not pursue self-knowledge in full disclosure and claim to have all of these standards of truth, logic, reality, rationality, scientism, philosophy, empiricism, whatever you want to call it. But the moment that somebody comes up with a formulation that uses the the standards that they claim are valid and good, which then undermines any of their prejudices, they turn on that person. That, to me, is the fundamental corruption. And, uh, of course, I would argue that it comes right back to the family, of course. And that is the reason that the world is where it is. That's my uh, uh, offering to the debate anyway. I'll, I'll open up the mics to anybody now who wants to uh, rapidly agree with me. If you don't want to rapidly agree with me, uh, just uh, let me know and I'll keep you muted. I hope people could hear that. <laughs> that would be good. I thought it wasn't a bad speech. Okay, did, you, did you guys hear that at all? Just uh, a blink. Yes, yeah, this is uh, Manos. I did. Oh, hi. Good, good. Now, um, did anybody have any uh, response to that? or, or say, yeah. I wasn't uh, speaking Esperanto then, not noticing it, was I? That'd be a bummer. Now, there's a gentleman here, uh, I think, uh, who's begins with X, who had something, I think, that he wanted to uh, talk uh, about a couple of weeks ago, but didn't have a microphone at that point. Uh, XAQ Fix, did you uh, get your microphone? Did you want to bring up uh, the topic that you had a couple of uh, weeks ago? And I'm sorry that we haven't had a chance to catch up since then. Uh, you can type something if you don't. Uh, uh, Nanos Kulinski, uh, is there somebody who's joined would also, if somebody who's running the chat could add them to the chat. That would be good. That would be good. Do, 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 do. Greg is stuck on a support call right now. Wow. Uh, what that means is that he's actually phoning in to uh, put his uh, cop application on hold, I think, just until he resolves this from an ethical uh, standpoint. So, um, <laughs> okay, well, we can drop that topic if uh, people uh, either uh, agree or need time to think about it or disagree so violently that they even, don't even want to mention anything about it. Uh, I'm still, uh, everything is uh, is open as far as the microphones go. If you would like to mention anything, 
uh, please, uh, now would be a good time. You are welcome to type it into the uh, into the chat uh, as well, uh, if you would like me to uh, to read it out. I have a variety of accents that I'm willing to use, uh, and uh, I do sometimes break into fluid hand signals, although not uh, of the kind that anybody else would recognize. Mike. Hello? Hello. Who's this? Oh, it's Andrew. Oh, hi, Andrew. How's it going? Good. I was just passing my mic out. Oh, you're such a tease. Come on, yeah. give me something. Hang on, I'm going to mute everyone and then give you the microphone so that you can speak to the the masses. One sec. And unmute, you can do it. Oh, Greg. Uh, Greg says, damn, I missed the entire monologue. Uh, Greg, I'm so sorry. Um, I proved you entirely wrong, but I forgot to record it. So just... Uh, you can just trust me on that. Okay, Andrew, go. Go. All right. Well, um, my summer started out. I flew to Tokyo and spent a month hitchhiking around Japan, which was good fun at times. But after being exposed to some of the some people in Japan, I don't know, not not quite for me. I don't know. There's a lot of things that are sort of going on there. You can imagine just the type of society it is, you know, being pretty oppressive towards the kids, and a lot of adults are very just, you know, unhappy looking, walking along, you know, looking down at the street, and, you know, very just, very regimented. Um, yeah, Japan is the society that has that wonderful statement which says, it is the nail that sticks up that gets hammered down. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, they have, Japan's unspoken problem is the name of homelessness there, and that's really interesting because they have... They have this idea that if you're, you know, homeless, you're supposed to be the shame of the society and, you know, you're supposed to outcast yourself. So, actually, in Tokyo, you can go to, like, a really rich area like um, Shinjuku where it's just, a, you know, the busiest train station in the world and just tons of stores everywhere and take about a 15- or 20-minute walk to the west and there's, like, a big homeless area where there's literally hundreds of, and maybe even thousands of people living in these uh, umbrella and cardboard shanty towns and they just live there it's really interesting because you can you can actually go and walk through these areas because the, the these homeless people won't make eye contact with you they, they just like it, it was very interesting I was I inquired about doing this and you know I was told yeah it's fine you can go walk through these areas and won't have you won't have a problem because these people are very just you know have this whole shame thing going on so it was quite interesting to, to sort of get the gravity of how many homeless people there are in Tokyo compared to what they want you to think, just because they, they sort of segregate themselves out. And, you know, you, you, most cities I've been to, you find homeless people begging on the streets and stuff, but but uh, in Tokyo, it was very quite different. Did you get any uh, sense of, it's not a casting like it would be in India, did you get any sense of how these people end up in this situation? Um, I mean, other than guess, being banned in a former life. I, I don't know. I guess a lot of drug addiction... Um, uh, gambling is a huge problem in Japan. It's very interesting how they have this mindset that, um, you know, I stayed with this one Australian guy, and he was telling me that he and his, a couple of his friends who are English teachers there, they like to have a friendly game of poker every once in a while for, you know, 5 or $10. Not a big deal at all. And um, one of his coworkers who's Japanese, uh, they invited him to the game, and he refused to go. He's very morally opposed to gambling. You know, he said, look, you know, in, in Japan we don't gamble. It's very bad, you, you know, on a very moral level, you know. And, um at the same time, this guy goes out and plays pachinko all the time. And 
officially gambling is illegal in Japan, but they have this system where you can buy these chips and play pachinko, you know, like you see on uh, Price is Right, and um, then you can get a prize and walk outside of the building to another physical location and exchange the prize for cash. So basically, like I saw, I saw people lined up at 5.30 in the morning more than once uh, to play pachinko, yet at the same time, Japanese will tell you that they're, you know, that gambling is bad. So it's very, well, that's uh, very odd, and it's very odd as well. I mean, that's pretty unique within any kind of culture that you have public piety with private vice. That's very unusual. You don't see that in Catholicism. You don't see that in in uh, in, in communism. Uh, with the, that's really amazing. So it must be very unique to to Japan because that's uh, I think that's pretty unique. Yeah, I mean it's a very interesting place to have. It's a, like there's a saying in Japan that uh, you know it takes leaving Japan for a Japanese person to become themselves. You know. They sort of understand that, that uh, unless they leave. But actually, at the same time, if you live, if you're Japanese and you live outside of Japan for a year or more, uh, or just some extended period of time, um, when you come back to Japan, you become what's you become tainted, is is how you're viewed by society. So actually, I stayed with a Japanese guy in one city who had spent seven years um, studying and working in Los Angeles, from I guess about 20 to 27, and he said, well, he had just returned back to Japan, I guess, two months before I had met him. And he said he went to a couple job interviews at just convenience stores and, you know, like a, a gas station. And um, he couldn't get hired. And he, sa he said uh, to his parents, well, what's the problem? Why, why aren't they hiring me? And they basically said, well, you're tainted. You know, people, people know um, that people, people can sort of tell by the way that you talk and the way that you address um, your bosses that you haven't been in the workplace in Japan for, you know, from age 20 to 27. You know, you sort of missed these seven years of, like, uh, development and social integration into the system, you know. So, like, this, this guy, he, he missed all this stuff, and now he doesn't really know how to, um, how to, you know, be, you know, correct around, around these bosses. And, uh, right, I think slavish deference is where he needs to get to. But after you've been in LA for a while, I think that's a little tough to to put on. Yeah, so it's very interesting to just sort of get that picture that wow, this guy came back and now he's viewed as tainted. You know, like. Um, I remember uh, I used to work with a woman who was who grew up in North America, and then she went to um, uh, she went to she was Japanese from a Japanese family. She grew up in North America, went to Japan and ended up getting uh, married to a Japanese guy. And there was constant problems because he was, you know, a woman's place is X, Y, and Z, and she was like, well, not so much. I grew up in the West and so on. So there were lots of conflicts around that. And he had this, uh, and I, I do associate this with Japanese culture, rightly or wrongly, he had this sort of terminal addiction to being cool. You know, like he had to have the right shades and he had to have the right hair, the hair haircut and so on. There's a really strong kind of... Uh, uh, sort of social obsession, I think, especially among young men, about sort of being Im impassive and totally cool, and I found that to be rather off-putting uh, in him, for sure. Oh, sure. And there's a, I mean, there's huge social pressure on, um, you know, just businessmen to go out and drink basically every night with their bosses. You know, like if you, I, I was talking to this one guy just in the car, it's really interesting when you are hitchhiking because it's a totally voluntary relationship. You know, a person pulls over because they want to talk with you or want to, you know, have some sort of an interaction with you. So they oftentimes I'm, I'm, you know, I'm very open with people and people are very open with me. So this guy spoke English and he was explaining that uh, he had sort of fallen out of favor at work and he wasn't going out and drinking at night and 
that was bad because, you know, he was, you know, on the path to getting fired. But at the same time, he was afraid to tell his wife this. So instead of going home and sort of telling his wife and admitting that, you know, oh, I'm getting into trouble at work, um, what he did was he went out and played pachinko. Right, because it's a very uh, – it's, it's a primitive culture as far as it's very focused on, on face, right? Saving uh-huh. face, shame. Exactly. It's, it's a very shame-based culture. Exactly. And what do they call it? This karoshi, right? It's death through overwork, right? These people who just work all day, go to karaoke all night, get two hours sleep, go back, work all day, that they're actually – I saw this uh, a picture of a, 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 it was a, I can't remember where, it was a black and white picture of a Japanese, young Japanese guy, just like three o'clock in the morning on the subway, just exhausted, you know, in the middle, on a weeknight, right? And uh, I think, now, can, can you tell me something about Japan that I don't really understand, though, because I know that there's a certain religious aspect to it, but what, what is it that keeps this, keep, what is it that, what is the idea, or what is the, what are the, uh, what's the philosophy that keeps everybody so much in line. That's the part that I can't quite figure out. Hmm. I, I, I'm not sure exactly how to answer that. I mean, just... Um, but you did go, right? No, I'm just yeah, kidding. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you weren't just what off, keeps, off gambling and saying you were in Japan, right? No. What, uh, <laughs> what keeps them in line? I mean, I, it's very interesting to see uh, just all the little kids, you know, they, just sort of like in the States, we don't have school uniforms at the public schools, but at the in the Japanese schools, the School uniforms are very formal, you know, for even for right. little kids there. And but is it uh, is it is uh, it nationalism that keeps it uh, so? Like, because you know, in in China it's communism, and in America it's patriotism, and in Canada it's this treacly kind of socialism, and in some countries it's like in in Italy it's it's socialism plus Catholicism. There's some dominant ideology that is generally used to club children into the shapeless mass that that the leaders want. I just I don't um, know enough about Japan think, to know what it is. I think honestly, the, a large part of it is just the family in Japan. I mean, the the cost of living is very high, and there's a lot of people who are you know full grown and ha- start to have their own family and are still living with their parents. You know, it's very family oriented in that way. Well, um, sure, but it's a particular kind of family philosophy. Is it? I mean, I don't think it's anything as as medieval as you know the spirits of your ancestors will be shamed if you speak back to your mother. But what is it that 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 makes them so uh, terrified uh, as a culture of of disapproval? In England, it's this stifling kind of socialist politeness that goes on. But in England, of course, you also have the aristocracy, which is uh, you know, a violent institution that's considered to be the very height of society, the queen and so on. So there's lots of stuff in England that, that keep people just terrified and brutalized. But I just, And again, I, uh, this is a tough question to give to you on the spot, but if you could mull it over, I'd be certainly very curious because it's the one area that I don't know much about what keeps them so... Uh, uh, it keeps them so so frightened and so so deferential and and what is it that how is it that the, the parents say you must obey me right because of course in Christianity you have your honor your mother and your father and so on but I don't know what it is in other areas. Hmm. I'm I'm really not sure how to answer that exactly. Um, well, if you could ask, I mean, if you you must have still some Japanese contacts. If you could ask, uh, I would really really uh, appreciate it uh, because I'm always fascinated about what what is the argument for morality that is used. To keep people down, right? I mean, so the fa- yeah, the father is very yeah, much I the can, dominant figure I in the can. household. That's right. That's right. Yeah, I, 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 had, a very, I had a very interesting experience. Um, I was walking in um, Harajuku, which is a really big, like you know, huge tourist area, lots of shopping and you know, just big roads and you know, real, what you see on the TV when when they show Tokyo. And all of a sudden, I hear this big loudspeaker and this 
huge uh, black um, uh, bus, you know, full-size full-size tour bus with a Japanese imperial flag on the side, and it was followed by a whole bunch of black, like you know, SUVs and jeeps and stuff, all with Japanese imperial flags. And I was like, wow, what's this, you know? And um, I asked somebody what what they were saying on the loudspeaker, and what they were saying was, um, um, no Koreans. Uh, you know, go home Koreans, go home Chinese, and um, Americans, we like you, but, but no bases, no military bases. And um, I, thought, I thought it was very interesting because my reaction was sort of like, oh, my God, you know, I, I can't, you know, this should be, like, protested, you know? Like, why isn't anybody sort of standing up to this? Because there's thousands of people, and they were all just ignoring it. And um, I think that's very much the Japanese mindset towards, towards problems is just ignore it. You know, like, here's a group of people who are very openly racist, and in the street, blaring the stuff on a loudspeaker, and nobody was sort of standing up to it, you know? Like, when you have a KKK meeting in, in the States, you'll get a whole bunch of anti-KKK protesters, but here's a, think, here's yeah, a Japanese imperialist. In What's that? Um, did you, uh, Christina was just saying that she uh, believes or has heard that there's quite a bit of violence in the child's rearing within Japan, and that would certainly explain, uh, explain the deference within the society, right? I mean, you have to have that kind of independent spirit, which is natural, <laughs> I think, to every human being kind of beaten out of you and that uh, did you get any sense of when you talk to people or uh, anything about their histories from a family standpoint or how discipline occurs for no, I, really, their martial sorry go ahead no i can't say that i had much uh, experience talking with people about that is there martial punishment in the schools do you know that nope not sure um the schools were very actually i stayed with this australian guy and he was a english teacher in a public school and it was um very interesting like you said it's all about face time, you know, so like he actually only teaches maybe, I think he said eight hours a week, like eight courses for one hour a piece in, a, in an elementary school, but officially he has to be at the school 30 hours or something, so most of the time he's sitting at a desk playing Nintendo DS, and uh, he just sort of has to do it, and like there's no, you know, he said obviously he could just leave, he's not doing any work, everyone knows he's not doing any work, but uh, just to, you know, look good, you have to be at the desk. It's right, and that indicates a pathological inability to experience and process criticism from an objective standpoint, uh, and that, of course, is uh, comes from the family. Right, you never talk back. Your your opinions are never solicited by your parents. There's no negotiation or any of that kind of stuff, and that's quite fascinating. I mean, Andrew, I hate to have to do this, but I think I'm going to have to assign you an essay. Um, <laughs> so we'll uh, I'll email it to you. Uh, it doesn't have to be too long, like no more than thirty thousand words. And you All can, right. of course, submit it in Japanese, but uh, uh, we'll, we'll talk about those topics uh, no time. another time. Um, I'd like to just touch on the rest of my summer. Um, I went up to Alaska, and then I went down to Los Angeles, and um, I was stayed in Los Angeles for seven weeks or so, and I uh, met up with Aaron from the boards, and uh, we had a great time, and I was absolutely, the whole time, um, speaking with a lot of people about... Uh, anarchy and all these different things, and um, I was very well received, I have to say. Um, and sort of being in, in the crowd that I was, um, very well received. Actually, I was at a club one night, and I, you know, happened to just notice this guy had a shirt that said uh, selfevolution.org, you know, which is, you can check out the site, you know, this guy Chris, he's sort of all about, you know, morality is not outside of you. Morality is not from religion. Morality is not from government. It's, it's something that, you know, you have within you. And it's very interesting to just uh, sort of get that that sort of feedback because I had the impression that California was a very you know had an individualist uh, vibe to it 
and that is what I experienced. You know, a lot of people, I guess the history of it is, you know, the, the gold rush and then, you know, the hippies, and I think it still is very much uh, holds true today. And, um, well, I think, I sort of, I you know, just... Yeah. Sorry, if I can just add to that, one of the things that I wanted to clarify, for those who don't know or haven't seen Andrew, one of the reasons that he might be sort of, quote, well-received, he's actually about eight feet tall, has a huge scar across his forehead, and has lasers for hands. So it might be his, his power of argument, but it also just might be physical intimidation. Uh, so, uh, of course, and in Japan, that would even be greater. And that might be why he didn't seem to get much information out of the Japanese, because they may have thought that he was some sort of a monster to devour the city, as seems to happen quite a bit in Japan. So I just wanted to point that out, you know, just in case you feel like you're not having as positive an effect. You just don't have the same fear factor. So, oh, Sorry, I go ahead. I, just, I didn't mean to interrupt I, you. I think I just come across as a you know, pretty positive, young, smiling guy. So, you know, I'm well-received by a lot of people. But, um, <clears throat> um yeah, like there's a lot of, you know, it's really positive to see. They have one, I, I was living in Santa Monica, and they have this co summer concert series every Thursday night. They have a concert down at the pier, and um, there was a woman there on a weekly basis who at first was just handing out flyers for the, there's this um, National Day of Resistance to the Bush regime. It's a Drive Out the Bush regime. I, I don't know the website, but you could look it up by that, I guess. And she was handing out flyers, and then you know, the next week she had a table, and the next week there was somebody else with her. And it was interesting because, you know, I, I, Sort of, you know, I, I really did feel inclined to approach people such as her and, you know, a couple other guys who were on the street selling uh, anti-war bumper stickers and stuff and just, you know, approach these people with the with some of the ideas. And uh, I was actually very well received by a lot of people. Is that right? So tell, tell us what uh, what happened. This is very, this is quite fascinating. <laughs> well, so, I mean, like, I, you, you'd go up, uh, okay, I'll play someone from California. Okay, dude, what do you get? No, I'm kidding. Uh, so, what kind of conversations did you, uh, did you have? Like, what sort of approaches, what openings did you, did you have, and what was the reception? Oh, lots of different things. I mean, uh, usually just like if, uh, well, the one guy had a bumper sticker, a table full of bumper stickers, and, and one of them, they all look good to me, you know, like, you know, all that peace and peace signs and stuff. And the one said, uh, peace is patriotic, and it had an American flag. And I pointed at it, and I sort of chuckled, and I said, well, this one doesn't fit. And he says, why not? And I said, well, well, war is patriotic, don't you know? You know, he's like, you know, I never thought about it. It's so simple, but it really makes sense. War is patriotic, you know? And uh, just from there, we sort of got into a discussion about things, and, and uh, it, it's very interesting, the, the level of reception that I had, because, you know, some people, like, like you've been talking about recently, are very naturally uh, curious about these things and want to get into them, and other people aren't so much. So it's, it's, it was a bit difficult for me at times to gauge um, what level of interest someone actually had in what I was saying. I'm not sure how to phrase that exactly. But, um, oh, because they're stoned, like, so it's hard to tell. Yeah, that too. But, um, but like this guy, I don't know, just sort of started, you know, explaining, you know, so well, what are your views on the war, you know, and all this stuff, and, you know, just sort of get into, you know, what is what is a market anarchy all about and what is it like to have competing value systems and, you know, once you just sort of explain a couple points, you know, I, I've found that people generally really, you know, just sort of explain the different worldview that, hey, look, you know, there's no such thing as these false concepts and explain a bit about epistemology and how we know things and concepts. And once you explain these very basic things to people, it, it all sort of comes together rather quickly. And one approach I, I like to use with people is that, um, you sort of get to a certain point in the conversation where you explain that, you know, this is what society is all about is, you know, voluntary and, you know, this stuff. And I sort of explain, like, look, you know, we're, our conversation right now is an example of what I'm talking about. And, and for that, I, I really value you and I value this conversation 
um, that you're open with me and that you're willing to talk about these things and you know that I respect you for that and <clears throat> I think just sort of explaining things from that level of like hey this is it right here you know like you, you have all these ideas about you know freedom and stuff and this is what what we're doing right now is is affecting that you know and and that I respect them for that and I think that really made things a lot a lot real a lot more real for for some people and I, even I, think that's a, I think that's a, I think that's an excellent approach, I and mean, I certainly think finding common ground with people and respecting that just about every human being wants to be free and wants to have a, a better life and better society. So I think, especially people who are out there doing this kind of stuff, like more stuff than than I'm doing for sure. You know, just in terms of going and sitting at a sidewalk in a hot sun and handing stuff out. That's quite a, you know, that's quite a lot of dedication. So I think that does need to be respected. Um. I could just touch on like I, Aaron is quite into like the club party scene and exposed me to a bit of it and um, it was really inspiring actually to sort of um, meet some of these people that he's friends with because they're not so much exposed to the stuff that Aaron and I are, um, but the nature of the things that they like to do um, at parties and you know the, the whole point of the whole point of it is that people have a common value that, you know, that's why they're going to a party to enjoy it and to express their values. And, um, you know, it's all about freedom and anarchy, you know, at, at a party sort of, or a race. Um, and to sort of talk now, to some can of I, can people. Now, can I just sound hopelessly square and ask you to give me a minute or two on, on the rave? Because uh, I've, I've never, I mean, we have them, I think, Tuesday nights just at, just at home here, just Christina and I. Um, and basically what we do is watch a couple of Christina Aguilera videos and tap our feet. But sometimes we'll have like two Diet Cokes instead. Uh, so we do aim for the sort of narcotic high as well. But uh, if you could just tell me a little bit more about California, which is probably even further out than what I'm talking about. Well, I mean, um, a, lot of the, a lot of Aaron's friends that I have met, you know, they've been into this sort of rave scene for a few years. You know, they've been, uh, <clears throat> you know, doing all of the, drugs and, you know, sort of just in the scene and, and um, my real perception of what, what it's all about, you know, it's, you know, of course, when you're taking ecstasy, you know, it is, it's described by a lot of people as, uh, you know, it's all about empathy and love and all these things. So you get a couple thousand people or, or more together in one area and it's absolutely the most peaceful environment you can imagine because everyone is there for the same reason, to enjoy the music and enjoy each other and have these, you know, amazing feelings that the drugs sort of bring out. And uh, it was really interesting, you know, amazing to experience that and, and to um, talk to people who've, who've had this, you know, really, um, they've sort of known about freedom for years because they've been doing it. You know, you, you go to a rave because there's no police there, there's no violence there. You go to a rave because other people are there for the same reason as you and because you just can look around the crowd and just feel great, you know. Um, so once I sort of, Aaron and I would sort of approach some people about, uh, you know, expanding, you know, the free society beyond just, you know, like, okay, well, the party, you know, a rave sort of, in a, almost metaphorically, you know, turn into like a, a, a classroom lesson on, on anarchy, you know, like, hey, this is, this is what you've been doing all night, you know, you've been having, uh, you've been having fun, you agree? But, no, no, uh, go, been, go. Uh, well, I'll ask you questions no, at the end. Uh, yeah, but, but I mean, it. you've been, you've, you've gone to this party because you have common values, and uh, it's all a self-regulating thing. And then you just want to sort of expand that to the rest of uh, of your life, you know? 
Right, right. Now, and, and absolutely, this this comes back to, and I certainly put put it forward with with uh, open arms that I'm hopelessly square about drugs. Right. So, uh, I ser- I love to dance. Actually, Christina and I went to a, a wedding the other day where we got to dance to some good Bangra Indian music, man, and that was very interesting. But uh, I just, you know, so for me, dancing all night is fantastic. I no problem with any of that kind of stuff. But I would say that, uh, you know, the drug side of things would be where, for me, I, I mean, you know, I'm a libertarian, so I don't care that people do drugs. More power to them. And, you know, I like musicians who've gotten uh, a lot of their inspiration through drugs, and some of the writers that I've liked have used drugs. So I don't have any particular problem with it. But I'm not sure that I would say that... Uh, raves, especially in conjunction with drug use, would translate to some kind of freedom, uh, simply because uh, if you're not free to be yourself when you are not uh, under the influence of mind-altering substances, then I'm not sure that the states that come out of that, uh, while enjoyable, I'm sure, I'm not sure that they would uh, be necessarily the same as freedom, because you have to kind of get outside your own particular uh, brain chemistry or your own particular identity in order to be free. I'm not sure that, I mean, that's just my own, like, not experience with them, so I'm not sort of trying to disprove your experience. That's just sort of my thoughts on it. Well, I mean, I, I was actually told by, you know, a, a few people, because I, was, I was sort of just being exposed to some of these things as well, and um, I was told by some more, you know, some people who've been doing these things for a while that a, lot, a large part of what they do is... Uh, I guess as they sort of grow, and this is you know like a, a mid to late twenties crowd now, and certain, certainly young people are into it, you know. But uh, that they've learned, you know, a lot of this. Uh, I don't know how to phrase this, but uh, learned to have some of the sort of the same experiences, but without the drugs, you know, like. Uh, right, right, and I think that's fantastic, and I I certainly do appreciate that they're you know when you're in a group dancing and and uh, you know. And uh, I mean, look, I ha- I have a beer or two, so it's not like you know. I mean, I'm not going to say that you have to be like coming off a marathon, but you can get a great spiritual feeling when you're dancing with a bunch of people, and there is a kind of positive collectivism in a way that I've experienced at times to do with that, uh, where you do sort of feel all in a sea of common humanity, and there is a kind of dissolution of boundaries within the personality, and in a pleasurable way. I just think that if uh, if if it does if it is the case that that sort of drugs and I guess certain kinds of ecstatic dehydration are required for that. That that well, may not be as free as being able to achieve it in other ways. Well, I I think a large part of it as well is you know, pretty much everyone at these events you know is uh, a product of propaganda you know so they 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 are a false self you know so it's it's sort of hard to say what exactly you know their nature would be you know what is their true self are they naturally sort of just dancers without drugs you know. And what role does the drug play in affecting the false self to have the true self come out? I, I don't know. I just how to think about these things. Yeah, and I, I don't have an answer to it either. Now, is there uh, – I've heard, and of course this just could be uh, – you know, this is the, the way it filters through to middle-aged guys who live in suburbia. But I've heard that you know, there is a, a fairly sexual element to the raves and to the experience of ecstasy as well. That uh, uh, did you experience any of that, or is that just sort of a myth? Yeah, that, uh, sure, sure. It's totally, it's totally, it's hypersexualized. Yeah, <laughs> it's uh, absolutely. In the way that your strip poker parties with the Australian were not, just rewriting history for you to to make it more, uh, even more gripping. But uh, yeah, so tell tell us a little bit more about that. Uh, is it is it hypersexualized in terms? Obviously, it's you know a lot of young tan people uh, dancing, and and I guess not uh, not exactly in chainmail. But uh, is it mostly in the 
sort of mental or emotional experience the hypersexuality or is it actually sort of descending into grope not descending becoming sort of grope fest and so on oh i mean it can become i remember i was in amsterdam last year and i saw a big uh poster for a rave that said it was featuring a 500 person orgy room i mean like you know there's anything you want is available you know so but absolutely that in my experience everyone is very respectful in the same regard because you know you don't want to sort of ruin the environment by, you know, being some sleazy guy and just sleezing up on some girl, you know. So in my experience, everyone was very respectful towards everyone else and, um, you know, respecting their rights to, to not just, you know, have people come up on them and start touching them, you know. But I'm sure if you if you found an area of the party where that was sort of the norm, you know, then, then yeah, sure, that goes, you know. But you've got to find that, that part. So you yeah. really did well, go from one extreme of culture to the other, going from Japan to raves. Yeah. My God, man, yeah. your head must have yeah. been spinning. But it's all now, about. Like you... said, go ahead. Like I said, it's all about common values. So if you want to be in an area of the party where the, there's no groping going on, then go for it. And if you want to be in an area of the party where it's just a wild free for all, then go for that too. You know. And, and is there an area? This would sort of be. Is there an area where self-groping is the norm? I'm just sort of trying to think if I ever end up at one. Um, like, did, they, did they give you like a fur glove and some baby oil? And uh, anyway, we can talk about this perhaps sort of one-on-one. -on -one. I just sort of am curious about, about where this sort of stuff goes. Because you don't want to go to the llama section for sure. I mean, that's no good. Uh, so I just sort of wonder I mean, how these things are all divided. I mean, certainly there's, you know, a homosexual section and there's a straight section and there's whatever, 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 you know. It's, uh, it's anarchy. It's freedom. It's whatever, whatever, people, whatever values people uh, have, they, they're affecting them. So you can right, find so you other can sort people of hear, have the same values. Are you finished with that anaconda? I mean, that could be sort of one of the, the things that has occurred for sure. Now, did you, did you come across any of this sort of, uh, act, sort of acted out orgy sexuality, or was it mostly like there's a no, room back dancing. there where you want, want to make sure you don't go in barefoot uh, and that they're going to have five guys with a hose out next morning? But, no, or just, was it just sort of out there, or was it sort of in your face? Dancing. I mean, well, a lot of, a lot of what I experienced was a, was a corporate version of it, you know, because it's um, – I guess the, the sort of scene has become a lot less underground, you know, Especially now that you know police are breaking up parties out in the desert and stuff, so it's. Uh, I mean, of course that still goes on. I've never really experienced that. I mean, look, you know, actually, um, this week right now is um, is Burning Man, which is the largest leave leave no trace festival in the world. It's what twenty five or thirty thousand people out in the middle of the Nevada desert, and it's basically like a complete anarchy for a week. And like I can only imagine some of the things that go on there, and that's going on now, and it's a totally privately funded thing. It costs, you know, $150 for a ticket, and you go out there, and you bring everything that you need for a week, and you have fun. And, like, it's, it's actually known for being, like, a, a huge meeting place for, you know, drug distribution for the country for the year, and, you know, just for, for some of the, the most individualistic ex forms of expression out there, you know. I, you can look up some pictures of Burning Man and, and see where Sort of no, I've heard there's some, real, uh, there's some real radical stuff going on there. Like, for instance, uh, in some of the chess games, the king can move two spaces. Like, they really just go uh, go all out as far as that sort of uh, abandonment of rules go. And actually, uh, they, uh, they, a lot of, there's an anti-gravity section as well uh, where you can float up. Now, I, uh, I've just I've had a long chat with Andrew, which has been fascinating. Thank you so much. Very, very interesting stuff. Uh, I'm going to open it up if other people wanted to add something before we uh, wind this puppy back down to the earth.
<laughs> was somebody just about to say? Well, I mean, there is. Uh, this is sort of a. There's. There's some. Uh, uh, there's. Uh, I mean, there's controversy, obviously, uh, because there's two kinds of uh, of things in the world, right? I mean, as far as shoulds and should nots, right? So for me, uh, if people want to go to raves and and you know take drugs and have orgies, that's their life, right? I mean, that's that's their life. It's their bodies. Uh, it certainly wouldn't be my cup of tea, and you can tell that because I use the phrase "my cup of tea," which I don't think would be used by a lot of ravers, <laughs> right? Um, but uh, who I think uh, the phrase is more often, uh, can I borrow your goat? But um, uh, the the question around sort of is this sort of pro-anarchistic or not pro-anarchistic? Uh, I think that it you know there are certain things which are always tests of tolerance, right? Which is sort of natural. Um, and I think that uh, raves must be a good deal of fun uh, and must be uh, quite a, quite an intense experience at certain times. Ecstasy is a very dangerous drug. Right, just so people uh, are aware of this. Um, uh, Christina, for most of her 20s, no, I'm just kidding. Um, but ecstasy is a very, very dangerous drug. It, it can, uh, a single use can uh, impair your cognitive capacities uh, permanently. Right, so uh, this just 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 to be aware of it. I sort of want to put that that like minor public service announcement out there. Ecstasy is a dangerous drug. Um, but of course, you can take it for years, and you know, I guess, still end up as a fairly uh, good functioning lamppost. But um, the the question around is is it good for anarchy? Is it not good for anarchy? I personally would say that it's uh, it's probably too much fun to be good for anarchy. Uh, this is sort of a, the uh, the delineation of a philosophical framework for a stateless society is uh, is quite a lot of work, or at least I experience it as uh, quite. A lot of work, but um, I don't think that dancing all night gets us to state the society. Which is not to say that dancing all night is not a great thing to do. It is a lot of fun, but I would be careful about saying stuff like, uh, and nobody has, right? But I mean, I would be careful about being tempted by this kind of hedonism and saying that I'm advancing the cause of liberty. I think you're advancing the cause of having a lot of fun, and there's nothing wrong with that cause at all. But I would say that. Um, uh, it's not necessarily the case that you are moving. You're not moving f science anywhere further forward by becoming uh, by going to a rave, right? You, nobody thinks that the the science of medicine is moved forward by dancing all night, and I don't think that anyone would say that the science of philosophy is moved forward by dancing all night. So I think that it's important to understand what is political and what is personal, and or what is philosophical and what is personal. And if you want to go to a rave, more power to you. But uh, I wouldn't say that it does anything in particular to advance sort of the cause of freedom. I think you just want to go to a rave and have fun, and not necessarily say that I'm serving the cause. Uh, that might not be the most uh, <laughs> the most accurate. Uh, oh, Andrew, uh, sorry that we're actually out of time because I'm I'm just concerned that you might have something that um, uh, that uh, might be contradicting my immense no uh, knowledge about illicit drugs. Um, which, because I mentioned the Diet Coke, right? And that's my courage about talking about that kind of stuff on air. So, uh, Andrew, of course you're on mic, and you can absolutely tell uh, me something about an experience that I've never had rather than have me theorize about something based on secondhand information. Go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say, I mean, if you read the Wikipedia entry on uh, free parties there, um, you know, it's sort of the idea about, well, you have a whole bunch of thousands and millions of people who want to do these drugs. Do you put them in jail or do you let them do them, you know? And the issue of, why they want to do them, and does it create an anarchist society? That's all sort of null, because the idea is that they want to do it, you know? So 
You and they should, idea. yeah. If they've got the uh, property and it's all voluntary and nobody's coerced, absolutely. Exactly. And if you read this link on the on the free parties, um, it talks about you know how parties would go on for weeks, and basically they would be totally self-regulating, and there'd be you know pill testing centers, and there'd be you know all all types of regulation, right? Whatever is required. And basically the parties would go on so long that the police sort of realized, hey, it's not going to end. This is a safe thing. People aren't getting hurt. This party's not going to go away. So the police would just sort of send in the police to just break it up at some random time. Right. No, and I agree. Look, I have no problem with people using private property. Your body is your own. Do whatever you want. If you go to a party for a couple of weeks, the likelihood of you doing some pretty serious damage to yourself is pretty high. That's the only thing that I'm sort of saying, that well, there's, no, there's a risk I, to this would, kind of stuff. I would say the same people aren't there for a, a couple of weeks. It's that the, the party sort of is develops, and then people keep coming, and people keep leaving, and people keep coming and leaving, and it just sort of stays. But, but, uh, the idea Sorry, can I just interrupt for a sec? Um, Greg yeah. wanted to come in, and I think he wanted to ask about uh, where the Burning Man stuff is, because I think he was really keen to, uh, to join up just before he goes into Cop Academy. Sorry, Greg, go ahead. Am I unmuted? Uh, you are unmuted, yes. Oh, okay. I couldn't tell from the display. Um, well, <laughs> oh, guess... uh, Greg's uh, sorry. Uh, it's it's burningman.com, and I think they have good instructions on how to get there. Because I think that was your question. Like, how do I how do I get me some of this uh, teenage gyrating ecstasy laden flesh? I think that was if I read the type correctly. Uh, sure. Um... <laughs> Uh, no, I, I guess I just don't see how, um, I don't know, all, all my parties, fine, if you if you want to do that kind of thing, fine, if you want to, you know, get high, fine, you know, do, do whatever you want, I'm not suggesting there needs to be a law against it, all I'm saying is that I, I don't see how that, um, I, I don't see how that's a, 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 a that to me, that's an escape. That's not an achievement of happiness. That's an escape from pain. As I well, the idea, like I said, is that you have you know sort of competing parties, and whichever one is the safest and has the best self-regulation, that's going to win out. You know, and then, like I said, the question of why do people want to do these things? That's another issue altogether. You know, the issue that we want to deal with is how do we make people who have this value system safe. Right, but you, you equated the the party itself with anarchy right. and and well, it is. I, I, I know at all. It's it's well, by it, definition, it's, it's a voluntary society. Everyone goes there because want to go there. What's Nobody going on? To go there. Well, but the, the, then then you can say a shopping mall is is anarchy as well, right? Well, sure. Yeah, okay, just just so you know, I mean, he's not sort of saying that the ideal of an anarchist society is a 500-person orgy, but that's not this, true at all, because the ideal right, of, a, of an anarchist right society an is a 600-person orgy. So, <laughs> sorry, go ahead. No, it's just people voluntarily uh, coming together and associating, and that's the definition of a voluntary society, so that's all it is. Now, I would be interested, and of course but, there's no way to do this unless you're willing to dive back in and do noble research for the course, and this would be a little bit more fun than finding out about how Japanese children are treated. But to me, it would be very interesting, having known a couple of people uh, when I was younger, or I guess I could almost say young, that um, were into this kind of scene, uh, that I would say that most of them came from very disordered family histories. 
So I think that's that's the other cautionary tale that I would put forward about people who are into these kinds of like you know all night raves, week long parties. That a lot of them do come from pretty disordered family histories, and in which case it's like yes, they're free to do it. But I think it might, if it is a case that they're acting out prior abuse by uh, a certain kind of escapism from pain or whatever, which isn't going to help them. Right, I mean, escapism is fine if you are sort of, you know, we go to see movies and it's not like we're jumping out of our skins and becoming other, other kinds of people. But the only thing I would be careful of, and I don't know the answer to this, but just based on some anecdotal stuff from my own past, that a lot of the people who ha- I've known who are into this kind of club scene uh, do come from some pretty disorganized and disordered and abusive pasts, which is not to say anything about the people who were at the race you were at, Andrew, of course, I don't know, right? But I just, that's something that's worth uh, asking if you get into that kind of situation. Because nothing, nothing enhances a, a party more than asking people if they've been abused. I mean, that really is the best way to keep, keep the party flowing. Before you finish this, Greg, I just wanted to mention that, you know, I think absolutely when you have sort of people who are experienced with these things and have seen, you know, they sort of ran the gambit and now they're a little bit older, I think they really have, you know, and these are some of the people that I've been talking to, um, have, you know, really realized the importance of, hey, this is why the government is not helping the situation, and this is how we, you know, as through my experience, this is how I know that a party can be regulated in such a way so that it's safe, you know, and it's just... And of course, you know, once you sort of realize that, hey, this party can be self-regulating, and then then your ideas about, you know, uh, getting rid of force in other areas of society, of course, that they're going to grow. You know? Right. I mean, certainly, if a drug-induced orgy can be self-regulating, we probably can be fairly safe with Walmart. I think that would sort of be the approach that I would take. And and this is, I mean, I mean that sort of facetiously, but also not facetiously. I mean, this might be one of the pe- reasons why people who've gone through these kinds of experiences aren't particularly worried about a stateless society because they've seen situations where you would never expect self-regulation to occur or be effective. And we're talking about things like education and charity, and they've seen like drug-induced orgies be self-regulating. So I think from that standpoint, the stuff we're proposing doesn't seem particularly radical. Interesting, interesting. All right, I'm going to uh, um, uh, I'm going to just unmute everyone, just so in case anybody had any sort of final comments. Just uh, we wind up the show. Thank you, of course, everyone for joining. And uh, I hope that I'm using my USB microphone. I've turned the sound up uh, on my uh, notebook because uh, I did get some complaints that I wasn't loud enough, and that's not something I often get in life. So it really did stick out in my mind. Uh, so everybody's unmuted. If you would like to uh, add any sort of final questions or comments or issues, problems, uh, now's the time. The mic is the collective's. So Andrew, I'll uh, I'll concede that a rave party is anarchy. If you'll concede that a bridge party is anarchy. What's a bridge party? <laughs> you know, the, the, four old people sitting around a table playing cards. Oh, sure. As well, as, as long as they're naked and on ecstasy, for sure. <laughs> and there's an anaconda. Right? They've got to be playing for something. As long as it's voluntary. For sure, for sure. Um, karaoke time, somebody says. Absolutely. Take it away, Greg. No, I'm kidding. I did actually, uh, I went to some friends of Christine and I's came over last night, and we did end up going for an hour and a half of karaoke. And there is a video evidence, which I'm not sure what I'm going to do with. But <laughs> yeah. do I have another? Spirited... Sorry, go ahead. Do I have another second? Uh, Neil just asked me to talk about my airport experience. I flew back last uh, 
Thursday, Wednesday, and um, I was at Los Angeles Airport. I guess a couple of you read my post on this already, but uh, you know the National Guard is there screening for bags, and um, on the plasma screen TV is CNN. You know, I just had one really interesting moment because I was just sort of standing there, just surveying the scene, and all of a sudden I noticed that Bush is on the TV, and it was just very interesting to sort of take in the gravity of that situation and. Uh, realize that, hey, here's the army crawling all around this airport and thousands of people just sort of scuffling around, and the leader's face is anywhere I look on plasma screen TVs. Uh, it's just a very, very interesting uh, scene. I thought that was a very, very gripping uh, metaphor, and I just wanted to mention just to those of you who are air traveling these days, the thing that you don't want to say when you're in the security lineup is, damn it, I knew I shouldn't be storing my visine up my ass. That's just something that's very important uh, to, uh, to not say. Right, because uh, if you do, you might have an even more gripping story than uh, Andrew's, and possibly a voice that ends up in a different pitch. But um, that's just a, a little, a little sort of words of wisdom to go to go out to people, because you know I like to do what I can to to uh, to put some some good words out. Right. All right. Is there anything else that uh, people wanted to add? Uh, we've made it to 6.03, and uh, it's been a fantastic chat. Uh, thanks so much to everyone, of course, for participating. Uh, I wanted to mention, because uh, I like to put the important announcements right at the end of a two-hour podcast that I'm not sure how many people get to the end of, but uh, uh, next uh, Saturday I'm going to be uh, a guest on Mark Stevens' uh, show, The Adventures in Legal Land show. Uh, which is going to be a radio show, you can actually call in and heckle, and no matter how you disguise your voice, I will track you down. Uh, but it'll actually probably be Christina. Um, but uh, I just sort of wanted to mention uh, mention that. I've also, uh, thanks to the board member who suggested this, I've bought uh, an ad using everybody's kind donations uh, at uh, Free Talk Live, which is one of the largest or most visited libertarian sites uh, on the web, so uh, I think that will help. And I'm going to continue or reinstate my ad on the International Society for Individual Liberty. And I guess we're hoving in on two fairly significant numbers. Uh, the one is that we are coming up to podcast 400, um, and that's just mind blowing to me. But we are in fact doing it. And uh, so I think that what podcast 400 is going to be is playing back all of the podcasts at about 15 times speed. Uh, just so that everyone can can get a more efficient way to process free domain radio. And uh, so that will sort of be one. And the other thing is we're coming up for 200 board members, which I think is fantastic. And uh, certainly appreciate everybody who's helping get the word uh, out there. And when's podcast 1000 <laughs> coming along? I think for podcast 1000, um, we'll be broadcasting from the rapture. That's sort of my goal. Uh, so Or it'll be naked either way. So <laughs> Thursday. <laughs> Ooh. Uh, Darch, can you just lean into the microphone a little bit? I'm just going to poke you in the eye. Um, so, yes, so somebody said, when's Podcast 1000 coming along? And Darch says, Thursday. And then, very kindly, he said, ow. So, <laughs> uh, thank you uh, so much, of course, everybody, uh, for listening. I will uh, process this when I can. If you get a chance, go to uh, YouTube, uh, Y-O-U-T-U-B-E.com. You can have a look at the uh, the philosophy videos, which are coming along nicely, I think. And we're starting to get, I guess, we've had about 150 people start on the videos. Uh, and uh, the ranks have been thinned out a little bit once I start using polysyllabic words. But uh, hardy souls are plowing forward. Uh, thanks so much. They're also available. The, the, um, they're on the uh, Free Domain Radio website. Just click on the videos link. You can see the sort of introduction to philosophy ones there, which I think are a pretty good way to start. So uh, the YouTube stuff is great. Well, thank you very much. 
uh, I think that it's um, it's a nice change. And I think, uh, as Christina pointed out, uh, like 90% of communication is nonverbal. And so I feel that each one of these is worth uh, 10 podcasts. So um, I uh, I appreciate that. Uh, so I think it's it's nice. I think it's nice. Also, I I also kind of wanted people to get get the sense that I wasn't insane. I mean, that's a fairly important thing for me overall because when you put out a lot of very unusual ideas, the first concern that people have is that you're mental. And so, you know, I may not have uh, um, disabused people of that notion with the podcast, but I hope that uh, seeing me as a relatively balanced and able to make eye contact individual. Uh, with some, uh, I guess, vaguely vaguely, uh, positive social skills that it might actually be sort of helpful in building some kind of credibility so that people don't, you know, see some sort of Howard Hughes guy with a beard down to his ass, uh, 15-inch long fingernails shuffling around with Kleenex boxes on his feet. Uh, I think that can be actually, uh, that can be quite helpful. Uh, Maybe check if you can get the colors better, Steph. It kind of looks like an infrared camera. Uh, that's because I also do want to see people, uh, the heat that my brain is generating, which I'm fairly sure is visible from space, because those things are very hard to do. I think you're right, um, and what, what I have to do with that, because I'm using natural lighting, is I have to record mid-afternoon when it's sunny, rather than waiting for evening where it does get kind of washed out, for sure, so I appreciate that. And what I will be doing, of course, is getting um, uh, sort of a kind of plaid contact lenses, so that when I go into the camera, it's really going to freak people out. And I think that's going to be quite helpful as well. So, All right. Well, thanks so much, everybody, for listening. I will talk to you next week. Uh, do, uh, do remember that uh, Saturday night. I'll post this, of course. I'm on Mark Stevens' radio show. And uh, thanks, everybody, for posting. And thanks for the uh, donations which came in this week. I really appreciate it. I will talk to you guys soon. All the best.